unless we apply our faith in day-to-day life, it's useless. A lot of us believe a whole lot of stuff, we know a whole lot of stuff, but if we never do anything as a result of what we believe, James would say it's pretty much a waste of time. James says that faith that's not worked out in practice is worthless. It's as good as dead. And so to help us out, through this book, he tackles a whole range of practical day-to-day issues and tries to show us how our belief in God, our faith in him, has got to affect all of these different arenas of life. Now, as James begins approaching the end of this book, he addresses the issue that probably challenges our faith more than anything else. In fact, this issue has the potential to shut your faith down if you don't know how to handle it properly. For some of you here today who are believers, already it's caused you to seriously doubt your faith at times. Others of you who are perhaps here with us today who would say, well, I'm not a Christian, this issue has perhaps been the one thing holding you back from putting your faith in Jesus. James, as he comes to the end of this book, discusses the whole issue of suffering and pain. Because there's nothing quite like a bout of suffering and pain to cause us to start questioning our faith. In fact, even the news we've just shared, maybe some of you, it's, it's causing questions to arise in your minds. I guess most of the questions we ask can be summarized by just two questions. God, why? And God, when? God, why are you allowing this to happen? And God, when are you going to stop it? When are you going to intervene? When are you going to bring an end to it? Now, here in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, in James chapter 5, James gives us just a two-word solution to this whole problem of pain and suffering. And I've got to warn you, it's very frustrating. In fact, if it wasn't James saying it, and if it wasn't in the Bible, I'd certainly not have the guts to get up here in front of all of you today and suggest that here's the response we're supposed to have to pain and suffering in our lives. But the reason I feel confident in giving you this solution today is partly because of who James was. If you remember, James was the half-brother of Jesus. He wasn't a philosopher. He wasn't a great theologian. He wasn't primarily a writer. He wasn't someone who spent years and years trying to unravel the deeper mysteries of life. He wasn't any of that. He was just a plain, ordinary, normal guy. Apart from the fact, I guess, that he grew up living in a house with Jesus. Now, perhaps because of the frustration of living in his older brother's shadow right through his childhood, James didn't seem to be one of Jesus' greatest fans during Jesus' earthly ministry. I don't know, perhaps James was jealous. Perhaps he felt a bit threatened by his older brother. Perhaps he didn't like having a brother who was always right, never did anything wrong. Maybe for one of those reasons, he he wasn't one of Jesus' greatest followers. The only thing that caused James to sit up and pay attention to his brother was when he saw him crucified, and then just a few days later, saw him walking around again. It was only then 
that James put his faith in Jesus and truly recognized him as the Messiah. And he spent the rest of his life ministering primarily to Jewish people, trying to convince them that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. So James comes to us not from the context of being a great learned man or a great philosopher or leader or writer of any of that stuff. He's just a normal guy who's seen a dead man walking. And out of all of that, he comes to us and says, I want to give you the answer. I want to give you the solution. I want to show you the response that you're to have to pain and suffering. It's as if he speaks partly out of his own pain. And he speaks on behalf of a whole group of people who were being persecuted for their faith. He he knew suffering firsthand. So this isn't just theory. In the context of seeing Jesus, his own brother, suffer the agony of crucifixion, then be raised from the dead, from that position, James comes to us and says, here's how we're to respond to pain and suffering in the world. And let me just warn you, you're probably not going to like his answer. I certainly don't. And yet, before we start arguing, we need to consider the source of the message and also the reasons given for believing it. And that's what I want to try and unpack and show you for the remaining half an hour or so. Let's just dive into the passage then and see what it is that James has to say. James chapter 5, verse 7. Here it is. How are we to respond to pain and suffering? Two words. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. That's rubbish, isn't it? I mean, that's, I mean it's the Bible, so it's not, but that's kind of my response. That, that has no answer at all. That, that's the kind of thing you say when you don't actually have an answer. You, you're confronted with a tough situation. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. So you just say, be patient. That's not an answer. That's like putting off the answer. Just look how far James puts it off. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Whoa, hold on a moment. I I can just about manage looking at my watch and being patient for a few minutes, maybe half an hour until I finish this talk, although that's a stretch for some of you. Uh, I can maybe just about manage being patient for a month or two. But to tell us to be patient until Jesus comes back, that's not an option. I want a solution to pain and suffering right now, here, today, or at least by this time next week, but much, not much longer into the future than that. But what James does is he takes us back here to this theme that actually stretches right through the New Testament. Jesus talked about it, Paul talked about it, Peter talked about it as well. All of them are consistent in saying this, and it's pretty tough, but it's a crucial part of what you need to believe if your faith in Jesus is really practically going to make a day-to-day difference in your life. Here's how James and Jesus and Peter and Paul all go about answering this question. Here's what they all say. The ultimate solution to pain and suffering in this life isn't found in this life. The ultimate solution 
to all the pain and suffering found in the world won't ultimately be found in this world. And that's pretty frustrating because I want a wrinkle-free life. I want a trouble-free existence. I want an end to all pain and suffering now. I don't want to wait. Now, I don't know if this is your experience, but it's certainly mine. That the harder I work personally to try and create a trouble-free bubble around myself, the harder it is for the other people around me. When I get things to be almost heaven-like, in my view, for me, unfortunately, it becomes more hell-like for the people I'm pressurizing to keep my world working as really I'd like for it to be. Some of you understand what I'm talking about. It looks like Helen understands what I'm talking about. I find that hard. Uh, Some of you understand what, what I'm talking about because... Maybe you live with a man or you live with a woman who, who's constantly trying to make their world perfect and it's wearing you down. Or maybe you're the person and, and you can see the pain in the eyes of your kids or your husband or your wife because you're working so hard to make everything perfect but you're killing them. And the irony is you are going to end up with the opposite of what you crave because eventually we all run out of time run out of energy we run out of youth or money or friends or or family and eventually we all end up coming to the conclusion which James takes us to right at the beginning of this passage where effectively he says you are not gonna experience fully heaven in this life and as much as God doesn't like what's happening to you The truth is that the ultimate solution to pain and suffering in this world is not found in this world. The ultimate solution to pain and suffering in this life isn't ultimately found within this lifetime. James says, you have got to be patient until Jesus returns because that is the moment you get to experience all you've longed for. Now, if I'm being honest, I don't like that answer very much. But James goes on to give us an illustration to try and help us to get it, to try and help us out in all of this. Let's look at the second half of verse 7. He says, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and the spring rains. I'm thinking, the farmer? I mean, all around me there's this sickness and there's this suffering. There's the financial pressure that Paul was alluding to earlier. There's all kinds of relational breakdown. And James, you're giving me an illustration about a farmer. And again, I want to be highly critical. I want to ignore what he says. But then I remember again who it is who's speaking here. I remember what James has seen and what he has experienced and the people that he's writing to. And I've got to take him seriously. He says, you've got to understand there's something going on that you can't see. There's something going on way beneath the surface. There's something at play here over which you have no control whatsoever. 
And just like the farmer plants the seeds and then backs off to allow the natural processes to take place and the seasons to come and the seasons to go, and in the proper time for the seed to break through the soil and produce a very valuable crop, James says, in the same way, like farmers, you need to back off, wait, and be patient. Because, and here's the thing that's so hard to keep in mind, because God's up to something that we can't always see. There's something going on beneath the surface that we just don't get, we don't understand. And as difficult and as at times agonizing as all of that is, your response to pain and suffering has got to be to be patient. And he goes on, verse 8, you too, that is, like the farmer, be patient and stand firm. In your Bible, it might say, take heart, or encourage, or strengthen your heart. This little phrase that's translated in all these different ways in different versions of the Bible literally means to stabilize your heart, to kind of recalibrate your heart to the reality of what God's saying. In other words, right there, in the midst of pain and suffering, it's very easy to get knocked off balance. It's incredibly easy to begin to doubt. It's very easy to begin asking questions and end up getting very critical. It's easy to let pain become a division between us and God and a division between us and the people around us. And as long as we look at pain and suffering through the lens of, why doesn't God do something? James says, you are going to be off balance in your heart. So, you need to recalibrate your heart. If you like, you need to rebalance it. You need to bring things back into proper focus and proper perspective. Because God is up to something beneath the surface which you can't see. And the best response, in fact, as we're going to see, the only real response to the pain and the suffering that we can't seem to do anything about is to be patient. And then James gives us the reason. Verse 8, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Now, he wrote those words 2,000 years ago. I'm thinking, James, I kind of think you've got this one a little bit wrong. The Lord's coming is near. 2,000 years have elapsed since he said that. But you know, all through the New Testament, the writers seem to live with the sense that Jesus could come back at any moment. You know why they believe that? The reason they kept saying, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus really is coming soon. The reason they kept saying that is because they'd seen Jesus leave. This wasn't mere theory. These were actual eyewitnesses of the Jesus who they'd seen ascend into heaven saying, I'm coming back. So as hard as it is for us today to believe, it was incredibly easy for them. They'd seen Jesus leave and heard him say audibly he was returning again. And so they lived with this constant awareness that any moment he could break in and return. 
And James says, that's how we're to live as well. We're to keep our hearts calibrated to the simple fact that pain and suffering will come to an end and every tear will be wiped from our eyes, not in this world, not in this life, but when Jesus returns. And we're to focus on the pain and the suffering in our lives here in the present through that lens. However bad things get in the here and now, there is coming a day when the resurrected Jesus is going to return and wrap absolutely everything up. On that day, we're told in the Bible that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, must confess, that he's Lord of all. There'll be absolutely no room for doubt everyone will know for sure he is victorious, he is in control, he is sovereign over everything. And the reason for his return will be to gather together all those of us who have ever believed in him. And at that moment, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, all of us will be changed. Just as Jesus was resurrected with a new body, that's what's going to happen for us everything will be made new. And that's the moment all of creation is longing for, waiting for desperately. That's the moment where all the consequences of sin that have so ravaged and damaged and wrecked and destroyed this world will be banished once and for all. The Bible teaches at that time there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And we get to live in and enjoy this transformed earth with brand new bodies forever. Listen, I want you to get rid, once and for all, from your mind, all thoughts of spending eternity kind of floating around on clouds playing harps. That sounds dull to me. That doesn't excite me. That doesn't motivate me. It's not going to be anything like that. We're going to get to live in the world as God always intended for it to be. And there will be infinite opportunity for enjoying and exploring the new creation with bodies that will not hamper us in any way. They won't grow tired, they won't get ill, they won't feel pain, and they certainly won't die. James understood this. And in his mind, it changed everything. He knew that when we get sick or when we're in pain, we can start to question the goodness of God. He knew that when those we care for deeply are suffering, we can very easily doubt God's goodness. He knew that when those we love die, we can perhaps even conclude that God isn't good. He's bad. He he knew how when we're faced perhaps with our own deaths, we can forget about God altogether and become paralyzed, gripped with fear. Why is this happening? Why are they suffering? Why am I experiencing so much pain? What's going on? God, are you really there? Why don't you do something? I I thought you were supposed to love us. Where's your goodness in all of this? But in the light, of the sure and certain hope there is for those of us who belong to Jesus, he'd say to us, be patient, 
stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And then James talks about how to treat each other in the meantime. He's just intensely practical because there's something about pain and suffering that can drive a real wedge between you and people you love. Haven't you seen that happen? Maybe you're married and you're experiencing some pretty major financial pressures. It's it's not your fault. It's just circumstances beyond your control. But the weight of the pressure is causing you real problems in your relationship. Maybe it's physical pain. It just wears you down and has a massive effect on how you relate with the people closest to you. Maybe you feel that other people don't really understand what you're going through. Perhaps you resent their insensitivity when they're around you. Maybe you're hurt that they haven't done more specifically to support you. And James is very aware of all of this. Here's what he says, verse 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. He's saying, we're to live our lives not critical of others, and certainly not critical of God. Really, we need to guard our hearts hugely. It's so important. I want to urge you, please do everything, absolutely everything you can to ensure you stay right in your attitudes towards others. And then James gives three examples to try and help us with all of this. Because... Your temptation and mine is still to give ourselves a pass on all of this. You know, my circumstances, they're so bad, none of this applies to me. If James could only see what I'm going through, he would change his tune. This is just so unrealistic for someone going through what I'm going through. James knows the way we think. So he gives us three concrete examples to show us that this is possible. This is realistic, that there is a way to live through our misery and our pain and maintain the perspective that he's talking about in these verses. Verse 10, first example. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, my guess is that isn't of huge encouragement to most of you. You're thinking... That example really doesn't cut it for me. But his audience back then would have known exactly what he was talking about. They'd have remembered how the prophets back in the Old Testament would show up when things were going really good and they'd call on people to repent and turn back to God or else things would start going really badly. And what normally happened, if you read some of those prophetic books in the Old Testament, what normally happened was the king or the guy in charge wouldn't take too kindly to the prophets interfering And in most cases, ended up throwing them into prison. It's like they'd end up in prison because of their faithful obedience to God. I mean, just imagine that. Anytime they could have quite legitimately turned to God and said, God, if you are real, surely you would have leapt to my defense by now. If I was really speaking for you, you wouldn't have allowed this to happen to me. But as time went by, God showed up 
and did exactly what the prophets had predicted. And then suddenly, the prophet was a national hero, and everyone believed they really did represent God. So James says, remember the prophets? Remember how for a time it looked like they were fools? Remember how for each of them it looked like they were wrong and all of their faith was in vain? That that they were waiting for God to do something that he was never going to do. And then remember what happened when finally God did break through. Remember what people thought of the prophets then. And people would stand and they scratch their heads and go, oh yeah, everyone thought they were the smartest people around. And James says, Remember how they maintain faith in the midst of adversity and suffering? In the same way, you just need to be patient. God is at work. He does keep his promises. And one day the pain that is so hard to deal with, it will be gone. It will be removed. And then your faith will be vindicated. That's the first example. And then... James gives us a slightly more current illustration. Verse 11, he says this, As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. It's as though he's saying, I want to think of people you know who have endured all kinds of hard times and have managed to maintain their faith in the midst of them. I want to know whether you can think of anybody like that. Think of those people you have known who have faced all kinds of problems financially, in their marriage, with their health. And yet, through it all, somehow, they've managed to maintain their faith in God. And James would ask us, what do you think of those people? Do you think they're fools? Do you you ever take them to one side and tell them they're wasting their lives, they're wasting their faith? James says, probably you don't do that. You watch them endure, and you think what I think. You think, God, I hope if I ever have to go through anything like that, I hope I've got that much faith for myself. He says, you've seen people do this. You've seen people be patient and keep trusting God when there was no evidence he was going to do anything. And you've respected them. And you've admired them. And you've wished you could be more like them. And so he concludes, in the same way, you be patient. You maintain your faith. You keep persevering. And then he gives us the third illustration, what I think is probably the best illustration of all. He says, in the middle of verse 11, you have heard of Job's perseverance. And I've seen what the Lord, and I've underlined this, finally brought about. And the reason I think this is such a great example is because Job was a man whose circumstances were really so bad and he suffered so incredibly much that that everybody assumed God had abandoned him when the reality was that couldn't have been further from the truth. You ever feel like God has abandoned you? I mean, how could God ever allow this to happen? Well, the story of Job provides a phenomenal picture of how God is sovereign even through the most dreadful tragedies. God hadn't abandoned him. He was working beneath the surface, doing something no one knew, no one understood, no one else saw. 
But in the end, God was faithful. He was just. He was merciful. And so James says, be patient. Well, it means do everything you can to relieve the suffering there is in this world. But in the end, recognize that ultimately the, the, the solution to pain and suffering in this world isn't in this world. But it will come when Jesus comes. And then I want you just to notice how James closes out this passage. End of verse 11. He says, The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He's not half full. He is full of compassion and mercy. To which we still struggle. We, we say, hold on a moment. How can in one breath you say, be patient, and then in the next claim to be full of compassion and mercy? James says, that's the nature of God. If you're patient, and if you persevere, it will become evident to you, as it became evident to all those Old Testament prophets and to the people you know, who you can think of, you can visualize, who persevered through suffering, and to Job, that God is a God of incredible compassion and mercy. He hasn't changed. But sometimes you just need to be patient to see it. And you know why this is so hard? This is so hard because if the circumstances weren't so difficult, if they weren't so dreadful, then it wouldn't require patience. But just think of all the other arenas, all the other circumstances of life that require patience. What, what happens when you don't show patience? Do, does it ever make things any better? I mean, what happens if, if you're an investor and you don't show patience? Do you, do you make more money? Not normally. What happens if you're fishing? and you don't show patience? Do you end up catching more fish? Not usually. What happens if you're a batsman and you don't show patience? Yeah, that's what happens. You, you don't score more runs for all you cooks out there. What happens if you are making a souffle? I mean, I, I try to relate to all sectors of the congregation. What, what happens if you are making a souffle and you don't show patience? Do you get to see it rise? No, you, you don't get a souffle like that. What happens? All you kids, what happens if you're at Alton Towers and you don't show patience? Do you get to go on any more rides? No. Isn't it true that in every arena of life, and I've shown such a broad spectrum of different arenas of life, who would have thought you'd get all of that in one talk? In every arena of life that requires patience, when we're impatient, we lose out. So James says, look, come on. Let's think about this together. What are your options anyway? I guess, first of all, you could conclude, as a result of everything you've just heard, there isn't a God. You know, if there was a good and loving God, things would have worked out so differently. Now, if you think like that, I want you to listen really carefully. If your problem is that God can't exist because of all the pain and suffering in the world... Really, all you have proved is this. That God, as you would like for him to exist, doesn't exist. Your God doesn't exist. You've written out your imaginary job description. You've created your perfect picture of what you'd like for him to look like. And then you've gone on a search for him, and you can't find him. 
And so you've ended up tearing up your list and you've concluded God doesn't exist. I want you to know you are exactly right. That God doesn't exist. But that says nothing about whether or not there is a God. As the writer Philip Yancey puts it, there's only one thing that's worse than disappointment with God. It's disappointment without God. And the tragedy of deciding that there is no God is that the pain doesn't go away. The only thing that goes away is your hope. Because you end up being stranded in a world without any meaning and any purpose. And you'll never be able to make sense of the suffering that's driven you to despair. Second option in all of this, I guess, is to conclude, well, okay, there is a God. It's just you don't really like him. I, I believe there is a God, but I'm mad at him. I mean, how could he let me go through all of this? If that's what he's like, I want nothing to do with him. You know what we've done? We've told God in our arrogance what we want him to do. If he has the nerve to do something even slightly different, we choose to take our faith elsewhere. But once again, what have we solved? I mean, is life any easier? Does the pain diminish? Does it go away? Is there less tragedy in the world? No. But we've effectively turned our back on the only one who can make any sense of the pain and the suffering, the junk that we have to deal with every day. And that's not a great place to be. Third option, I suggest, is to conclude humbly that God is God. I'm telling you, there is no answer and there is no sense apart from coming to God and acknowledging that although we don't necessarily like everything that's happening, although we might have done it differently if we were God, actually we're not God and he is. And he's sovereign. So we'll be patient and we'll keep on trusting him to come through in the end. Because ultimately... Our hope lies beyond what happens in this life. Our firm, unshakable belief is that Jesus is returning. He is coming back and he's going to make all things new. And that future hope transforms how we view our present pain and our current suffering. The question I want to close with is this. As we wait for that day, as we long for it, the day that Jesus returns. And I hope as a result of what we've seen today that you do long for it, that it excites you maybe slightly more than it did before, that it does fill you with a little bit of hope. The question is, what do we do with the days between now and then? Well, for fear of repeating myself, in the words of James here in verse 8, we're to be patient and stand firm. We're to recalibrate our hearts. We're to bring things into proper focus and perspective because the Lord's coming is near. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. In the light of the truth that Jesus is going to return at the end of time, he says this, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. 
Let nothing move you. Now just to say, Paul is not talking here about not being moved emotionally. When we're faced with suffering, we're faced with sickness, faced with death, it's bound to move us emotionally. It's fine. It's necessary. We're not to shut down our emotions. But even through the grieving process, because of the hope we have, we needn't be shifted from our place of strength in Christ. What both Paul and James are getting at is that the hope we have enables us to stand firm and not be moved, not be shaken or shifted from our place of strength. So whether it's the car crash or the pain or the sickness or the disease or the cancer or the sudden heart attack or the stroke or the dementia or the Alzheimer's or the funeral let nothing move you stand firm I tell you you need this hope the most when you're hurting we don't have a God who isn't able to sympathise with us in our suffering he's been there he knows he's been through the most excruciating agonising death and he's come through the other side and now he has this glorious resurrected body and we're going to trust him until we see him not doubting that when we see him in an instant we too will be transformed in his glorious likeness and so what should we do with our time between now and then Paul goes on to say in the, the second half of 1 Corinthians 15 58 always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord to ministry to the service of Jesus. All of us are in full-time ministry if we know Jesus. All of our life is worship to him, can be used to bring glory to him. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, whatever you do, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. You need to know that so much of our ministry, what we do for Jesus, comes out of weakness and not strength. And when you suffer, as you will, because we're not promised an easy life, when you suffer, you're going to not let go of your hope because you know it's not in vain. There is life beyond this life. And one day this, this frail, fragile shell, all its weakness, will be exchanged for a brand new model. And if you truly believe this, today you genuinely have this hope, you won't keep it to yourself you will surely share it with others. I mean, you'd be pretty heartless not to. This has got to be the greatest news in the whole world. It, it always has been, and it always will be. This is what secretly, inwardly, everyone longs for. And we've got the answers. Just very quickly, before we close, I want to address anyone here today who, who isn't a Christian, who isn't a believer in the things I've been talking about. I want to say to you, you need Jesus. I want to be clear with you as I can. There is no hope. There is no life. There is no forgiveness. There is no healing. There is no heaven apart from Jesus. Without Jesus, there really is no hope. 
It's all about Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. It's only through Jesus. So I'd implore you to, to give the rest of your life to Jesus. Why don't you tell him today, you, you want him to forgive you. You want to live for him from this point on. You want to know him in this life and you want to spend all of eternity with him when you die. For those of us here who already know Jesus, maybe you're suffering right now. I plead with you, don't doubt the goodness of God. Not diminishing the reality of what you are going through. I'm just wanting you to get clarity and purpose that there is suffering in this world because this world has been broken by sin. But Jesus isn't like that. He is full of compassion and mercy. At the end of time, he's going to come and he's going to remove all the consequences of sin once and for all. That is our sure, unshakable, certain hope. And what James desperately tries to get through to us in this book is that this faith must affect, must influence, must shape how we live right now. I wonder if we could stand and we'll pray.